You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest spent the first 36 years of her life in two very different but strict religious movements, though the later group was a little more sinister. It was revealed that the leader of that group had just been jailed for pedophilia, abusing his power and molesting young teenage girls. Please welcome to the show to tell her story, Claire Ashman. How are you, Claire? Welcome to the show. Um, I'm good, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for coming on to the show. So, Claire, can you tell us about how you originally got into both of the religious groups? Uh, well, first of all... Uh, I was I was just born into a normal Catholic family and then my mum changed. I'm eldest of nine children. Um, my mum changed when I was four. So there was myself, my brother, and I have uh, um, twins in the family. So my twin, my sister and brother that were twins. So it was four of us. And mum met this priest that didn't like the changes in the Catholic church, the modern changes. And he said that the church had gone way too far with all of the changes and that we really needed to just sort of like pull everything back to the way it was pre-1962. So that seemed to go down really well with mum and so she completely changed our family overnight and we became very religious. Like that particular priest started saying the Latin mass in our lounge room and there wasn't just my family but other people as well. And then. She overhauled our wardrobes. So there was, for my sister and I, there was no no more jeans, no more shorts, no more T-shirts, no more singlets. Um, we had to wear, you know, like we had to be covered basically from neck to elbow to below the knee and we had to wear scarves on our heads when we went to church. And the TV blew up and then Dad wanted to replace it and Mum wouldn't let him. And then a couple of years after that, we moved out into the country. So out just in a little town, Lelel, outside of Ballarat. And mum proceeded to homeschool us, even though the school was only three miles down the road. Uh, in During that time, uh, we would travel to Melbourne every Sunday. So it was two hours drive one way to go to attend church. Yep said in Latin, so the whole service would last probably nearly two hours. So we'd travel two hours to be two hours in church and then two hours back. And it was just very strict. Mum was very strict on, you know, on prayer, on what we read, what we learned, all of that. Mm. So it was like that until I was 18 and then... Um, I married a man that was like nearly 13 years older than me. I only found out a couple of years ago that I was actually from somebody else that reconnected with me that I was groomed. So he basically was looking for a young teenage bride that he could mould. So I was it. And I mean, being so naive, because people have said to me, like, how, did, how would you not know? But I mean, you've got to remember we moved to Lelel when I was like seven, six and a half or seven. And then we're out in the country where, you know, half, half an hour from Ballarat, we have no TV. We're not allowed to listen to the radio. There's no outside influences. We had no friends. Yeah. Mum's in complete control of everything that we, everything, all our import basically. So yeah, we, so um, I got yeah. married at 18 and a half and then, um, Unbeknownst to me, he believed in end of world theories. And so he wanted to move to 
a community because his family had actually come from Europe. And so he loved that romantic idea of living in a little village with the, you know, with the church at its center and Mm. all of that. And he found this so-called loving community on the South coast of New South Wales. And so he basically sold the house that we were living in, in Melbourne. So he literally rang up the real estate agent without my permission and without asking me what I thought and got a for sale sign put up the front of the house Mm. and it just sold it from underneath us and moved us up there. Wow. And I I suppose that's the point too, is that people have got to realize that at that age and and the environment you were living in, your, uh, I suppose, naivety, your innocence and everything was, was held at ransom really, because I mean, if you don't have any TV, you don't have any access to internet back then. Um, you don't have a radio, then really you only know what you're told. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have anything else. Like I remember, because Dad used to like listening to the ABC News, and Mum didn't like it because she could, because obviously she couldn't control that. She couldn't mm. control what would be on the news. And I remember when I was about sixteen, and one of the headlines of the news on a particular day was that a girl had gotten raped, and I didn't know what rape meant because I, from a farming perspective, I knew that rape was a crop. Mm-hmm. So when I'd heard that a girl got raped. I had no idea what that meant Mm. um, and why it would be on the headline of the news. And then I asked mum what it meant. What did rape mean? And she just said, oh, you don't need to know the meaning of that. And I was 16. So uh, there's so many questions. (laughs) Go for it. Literally go for it. Do you think you're, I mean, first of all, are there any of your family members still involved in the religions? Yes, in the first one, yes, because right. I just want to say there's two separate groups. They're both they're both breakaways from the Catholic Church, but um, the first one is a sect, and it has millions of followers around the world. Mm. Um, there is a couple of churches in Adelaide actually that belong wow. to them. Yeah, they're everywhere. Um, the the Doomsday Cult that I was a part that um, my ex husband moved us to um, that is a much smaller group but it is still going. Mm. Um, but yeah, my, so uh, one of my younger sisters is still involved in that first group. Um, and the brother next down from me, him and his family are involved in a breakaway group from that first group. Right. So just, oh my God. It gets, it gets so ugly many, so many choices. So many yes. choices. Yes. Um, and yes, w- and my next question would be your mother. So do you, yes, think go for it. She, do you think that she had a, like, do you think she had mental issues or do you think it was control issues? Uh, all of the above. Yeah. Um, she had been, well, she had actually been a nun before she got married. Right. She was a, she spent time in the St. John of God convent in Subiaco in Western Australia. So that's a, they're a nursing order mm. and where you became, where you became, you were a religious nun as well as training to be a nurse. And um, before she took her first vows, her, um, she got psoriasis all over her head and there was nothing that they could, well, they tried various things. I don't know exactly what, but they tried various things and um, it didn't heal. 
And so when it didn't heal, that was seen as a sign from God that she didn't have a vocation. Right. So she left there and went and lived in Melbourne with her mum and finished off her nursing at Sacred Heart Hospital in Malvern. Um, and I think because she didn't have a choice in leaving the convent, it was kind of forced on her, I think that she always missed it. Mm. And so then, and see, the way the old Catholics think is that for a woman, you should try being a nun first, getting married is second, and even when you do get married, you need to have as many children as you can produce. You know, it's almost like you've got to, the more children you have, the more you can redeem yourself more or less and get yourself a higher place in heaven. Mm. And I just think, you know, because I didn't find out until I was like 16 that she'd been a nun before she got married. And my siblings and I always wondered why she loved to just like kneel in silence and for so long and meditate and pray and all of that and have votive candles going and statues everywhere. Like, I mean, we had a life-size crucifix with Jesus on it in our hallway, for God's sake. <laughs> when I told when I told my my now husband, he's like, "What the hell?" Oh, I said, it's yeah, crazy. It's funny, you know. I've always been myself. I've always been drawn to um, like religious paintings and and crosses, mm-hmm. but that's more so because of Madonna's influence. <laughs> Madonna, oh boy, she is bad. She is not right. I love it. Now, what was your memories of the groups? So, uh, you know, maybe even separate them into the two. Like, what are your early earliest memories of both? Well, my earliest memories are probably when my mum. The very early, the earliest memory I have is when um, mum changed and. Mm. I remember that I was happily playing with my siblings one day and I was in my red tartan overalls. I was so proud of those little tartan overalls. And um, mum came to me and she was waving this skirt in her hand and she said, you have to change. And I thought, why? I'm already dressed. And she said, no, no, you have to change. And she knelt down in front of me and held the skirt open so that I could, you know, she said, you have to change into this because we're going to go visit a priest. And my four-and-a-half-year-old brain's thinking, well, I'm already dressed, so why do I have to change? I'm like, We're only going to go visit a priest, and I've never had to do this before, so why? And um, so mum said, you've got two choices. Either take the pants off and put the skirt on or put the skirt over the overalls. So I thought, well, I don't want to give, my, give in to mum. I was mm. a little bit willful, so I thought I'll put the skirt over the tartan overalls. <laughs> God knows what I look like, but anyway. <laughs> Creating fashion um, statements way back then. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. Um, but it was just, you know, there's just memories of like, I mean, there's kind of, how can I say half and half memories because see, dad didn't agree with any of this. So he didn't mm. agree with the homeschooling. He, he was a farmer by nature. So he didn't mind living in the country, yeah. but he didn't like that. We were separated because from society, because he was somebody who's, he's someone who can literally walk down the street and find the first person and just chat to them and dead set within 10 minutes, he knows their whole history. Mm-hmm. He knows their family history. He knows everything. He's that kind of person. Um, whereas mum was keeping us really isolated and insular. Now with dad, I mean, we learnt a lot of practical stuff. We learnt how to, you know, round up sheep, milk cows, milk goes, separate milk, um, you know, make butter, all of that sort of thing. 
But then from mum's side, we had all of this like indoctrination of um, this indoctrination, religious indoctrination every day. You know, everything was a sin, you know, like have a shower really quickly because, you know, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be committing any sins by, from the, by the sixth commandment. And then mm. it was always just, you know, and then in the last half hour of travelling down to church every Sunday, she would be literally speaking to each one of us and telling us, like, you know, what sins we'd committed. Okay, Claire, you've done this and this and this. So remember that. Matthew, you've done this. Marisha, you've done that. Dominic, you've done this. And, like, we were known as the best family ever because we were the first ones to line up for confession every week. Mm. Mum didn't realise that we would be going in there and just going in there and just, you know, telling whatever it was that she said. Yeah. I mean, and this sorrow for sin thing, like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but then, so we, so I remember all of that, you know, the mm. religion tainted everything. With the second group, it was more, it was more sinister because it was doomsday. Like we yes. were literally preparing for the end of the world every six months. So we moved up there in February 97 and I cannot remember which comet it was, but there was a comet that was supposed to, who's was supposed to come close to earth in June. I'm not sure whether it wasn't Haley's comet. It might've been Kahootek or something like that. Yeah. And so that was predicted to be the beginning of the end. So we had no sooner moved there than we were preparing the house with black plastic to cover the insides of the windows. Um, we were strengthening the roof because there was going to be extreme heat and then extreme cold, meaning meters of snow. We had to store food, store water, store clothing, store blankets. Like it, it was just full on from the beginning. And it was, yeah, I, that was not a good time. Not a good time at all. God, imagine if you did all that preparation and the comment actually landed on your house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you've got to remember, we were going to be safe because we were the Oh, that's right, yeah. We were... I forgot that bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got to remember that bit, yeah. <laughs> now, I also know that your family challenged the authority of the church through a series of letters. How did that come about? Well, I did. It was right. me. I was the trouble. <laughs> yeah, I was. Well... My ex-husband, Tony, got it into his head that he wanted to be a married priest because the cult leader began um, began ordaining married men as priests. Right. Now, in the Catholic Church, in the, in the Western Catholic Church, you can't have that. Mm. It's only in the Eastern Rite they have that. And, you know, I was thinking, and see, also the cult leader had said that any married man who did want to be a priest had to ask the permission of his wife. And Tony did not. And also I was thinking he's treating myself and my kids like shit, excuse the language, and he was also gambling, like he gambled away quarter of a million dollars over three years. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, you're doing that and yet you want to be a married priest and be oh so holy and show yourself to be, you know, so good and saying mass and hearing people's confessions and giving people spiritual direction. And I'm thinking, no. No, that's not happening. But anyway, he went ahead and did it anyway. And I wasn't happy about it. And see, at that point, you've got to remember the way I was brought up, I was brought up very strictly Catholic. So at that point in time, it was very important to me that if you're going to call yourself a Catholic, then you had at least to abide by the rules. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, the cult leader was up there on the pulpit telling everybody to abide by the rules, and yet he was doing, he was flouting the rules. So basically, that's what I said. I, I challenged him on three doctrinal issues, and he didn't like it. And so we ended up by getting evicted. Wow. My kids and I were very happy about that, I might say. My husband was not. Make sure you subscribe to Ants Talk. So is, is the second the religion, is that where the, um, the cult leader was charged as for pedophilia and stuff like that? How did that yeah, come about? Yeah, he went to jail for pedophilia. Uh, he, was, he was grooming young girls and sexually molesting them from a young age. That, I did not know that when we moved there mm. and my family were not involved in that. Um, but he did go to jail for that, yes. Wow, absolutely appalling. Now, you, oh, I know it is. You ended up with eight children. Is that correct? Yes. We, yes. Why such a big family? Was that going back to those original rules? Wow. Yeah, Catholic rules. You should know this. Everybody knows that Catholics don't practice contraception. You're not allowed to. So I was brought up strict Catholic, and so I had eight children, yes. That's amazing. How, how have you dealt with eight children? <laughs> Uh, one day at a time. <laughs> They're now age, well, now it's a lot easier. They're age 30 down to 16. So Wow. Mm. Because you don't, look, you don't look old enough to have a 30-year-old child at <laughs> <Yeah>. all. That's <laughs> oh, incredible. Well, there you go. Um, what was one of the first things you did when you found individual freedom? Um. Well, when I was, so I left the cult at, I was 36 and a half when I left the cult. When I was 38 years old, I pierced my ears for the first time. I I'd never had pierced ears. I bought my first pair of jeans and wore my first bikini. Wow. That must have been so exciting. <laughs> well, it was exciting, but it was also a bit daunting, anxiety ridden. Yeah. Anxiety ridden because, uh, you know, I'd been taught that any woman that wears pants, you know, or jeans or anything or shorts or anything like that and shock horror bikinis, you're tempting every man that sees you into sin and so you're basically leading them to hell and you're going to hell yourself. So it's kind of, it's, it's a lot to do with the mental. Yeah. I and see, that's what, I, that, that's what I talk on now because a lot of people can leave these groups you can leave you can leave these groups or you can leave a domestic violent relationship or you can leave a culturally strict family or whatever you can leave and you can look like you're free on the outside mm. if you know what i mean but it's you've got the these mental shackles yeah yeah it is it's the conditioning and it's the indoctrination that really can haunt you for a very long time mm. it really can yeah i can imagine what was um the, what was the one thing you didn't want your own children doing? Growing up like I did. Yeah. That was honestly my drive. My drive to leave that doomsday cult was that I wanted my kids to live free. I wanted them to be free. I wanted them to be independent. I wanted them to truly be able to embrace life and have a good education so that they could do whatever they wanted. Mm. And that was for all of my children, but I've, I have five daughters and I so wanted them to be free. I so wanted them to be able to wear anything that they wanted, to do anything that they wanted, to travel. And I mean, 
Now I'm proud to say my eldest is in the Air Force. My second, so my eldest son is in the Air Force. My second son is in the Navy. My eldest daughter works for Department of Veteran Affairs where she helps our veterans in the rehabilitation section. My, one of my other daughters has an army partner. I have, you know, all of them, all of them are empathetic, sympathetic, mm. compassionate, understanding, out for social justice. You know what I mean? They're, so you know, I'm proud of all of my kids. Yeah, you know, that's they're, they're, they're here to make a difference. We're here to take over the world, actually. That's but, amazing. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Now, so when you went from the first one to the second one, and we were talking before about, you know, your innocence and stuff like that, because you didn't have, you know, the knowledge of the outside mm-hmm. world as such because you weren't exposed to it. When did the awareness start to happen of, you know, when you'd go out and maybe see someone wearing pants or a woman wearing pants or, you know, when did you start to notice, hang on a second, what is happening here? You know what I mean? Like, where did, when did you start to notice that your life was different to the majority? I suppose the best way of saying uh, it. Well, I knew from very young mm. because, see, when I was about 13, mum wanted us to learn ballroom dancing because apparently that's a wholesome way to find a partner um anyway (laughs) but the thing was that we were very different i mean you've got to imagine this is 1983 you know the fashions of 1983 i wasn't a part of any of those fashions in 1983 and so you know mum put us into this ballroom dancing class where all the other kids were hip and happening Mm. And we're there in these clothes that are a secondhand, and I'm not against secondhand clothes, but I'm just saying, you know, they look the style, yeah, secondhand. Yeah. And the style would have been was it like a little bit like, like a, Little House in the Prairie? <laughs> yes, and I mean, can you imagine? So, how are you meant to fit in when you yeah. even look so different? Exactly. So that was hard enough. But then even when I went out into the world to get, because I left home just before I was 18 and I went, I moved to Melbourne and like, I remember that, like I was trying to get a job anywhere. And I remember I got a job at KFC, I think Um, I got, they told me that I had the job, but they wore pants. And I said, Oh, do you wear skirts? And they said, no. And they just looked at me weird. And so I turned the job down because I wasn't going to wear pants. Wow. Like, I just, oh my God, but you've got to remember, I was so naive. I was so mm. innocent. I was so, I, I had no, I just had no inkling of how the world worked. I really didn't. That's I, I honestly had no clue. I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was ripe for, I was ripe for being groomed, mm. you know? Yeah, definitely. What was the most surprising thing about the new world did you find? Oh God, there was so much though. Yeah. Like, oh, well, I suppose the thing is it was, I suppose it was really hard because I mean, you've got to remember when I left, when I left the cult, I had eight children aged 16 down to two. Mm. I had three of them, 16, 15, 14 in high school. So I had already had three kids in high school and all of my peers, so pe- the other women that I met that were around the same age as me, they only had half or less the amount of children as me and their kids weren't teenagers either. Mm. So you've got to imagine and see, when I look back now, my maturity level was probably, my kids were more mature. They knew more about the world than I did. Yeah. Like I, I, I was real, I was backward. I was. Um, 
And it was hard for me because I've got three teenage kids in high school and I've got to try and find my way around, you know, all of the subjects that they're doing and then, you know, parent-teacher interviews, all of this because their father wasn't interested in any of that and I was trying to build this normal life. I kind of, the whole world just smacked me in the face because I had to learn how to, I had to open up my own bank account. I had to learn how to use an ATM card. I had to learn how to manage money. I had no idea how to do that. I just, you know, I applied for rental on my own when we got evicted. I had no idea how to do these things. Nothing. And I literally, it was just trial and error. And mm. I can't say that one thing kind of jumped out at me because it I kind of had lot. everything. Yeah. I had everything. It really would have been, yeah. It would have like literally been. Like fashion. Crawling Passion out of a hole everything. almost. That's exactly. Yeah. Amazing. That just, I can almost imagine it and imagine the feeling and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's actually quite overwhelming thinking about it. It's, it would be quite the experience. <laughs> well, it was. And see, the thing was, I reckon that if I didn't have, if I hadn't have been so driven for a better life for my kids, yeah, I wouldn't have, I probably would have curled up in a corner somewhere. Like I'm not saying it was hard. I remember in the second house that we were, that we moved to, I remember one night that I can't remember exactly what happened, but I remember I went into the cupboard in my bedroom and just and just sat there and cried and just thought, mm. you know, like how am I going to do this? I don't even know how I'm going to do this. But I mean, I had eight children looking at me. They were, you know, I had to be their stability. I had to be yeah. their security. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't just do what I wanted or just, you know, fall in a heap anywhere. Mm. I just couldn't do that. And I suppose in a way they were your silent support, even though they, you know, they wouldn't have been aware that they were supporting you, but it would have been that silent support almost like at least you knew you had them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The kids have been amazing. Like they have just been, yeah, they've been my biggest, you know, whenever I've done a podcast interview or I've done my TEDx talks or I've done TV interviews and I get, you know, my, my screen lights up with capital letters and emojis like, good idea, mum, we're so proud of you. You oh, are amazing. So you rocked it. You know? Oh, that's amazing. So, I love hearing that. Now talking about your TED talks, you've actually given four in the space of two yes. years. What is the question most people ask after your talks? Um, they usually start off by saying, you look so normal. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> um, I don't take that as an offence because I understand where they're coming from. Um, they, I think the, the number one thing that they've said is like, good on you for, yeah. you know, like doing what you did and breaking away. And also I've had a lot of women contact me and they're like, you know, thank you for speaking out and, mm. and, highlighting what it's really like because there's so many women that do come out of these groups and they don't say anything because it's so embarrassing. And I know that embarrassment, you know, like when people are talking to you about supposedly normal things, you know, the eighties movies, the eighties fashion, you know, all of that kind of thing, the the TV series and all the rest of it. Do you know how embarrassing it was when I went to go dating, you know, and I went with another friend of mine down to Canberra a few times and we would, you know, we'd go to O'Malley's down there and, you know, they had great music and, you know, and there'd be guys that would go, oh, you know, let's dance. Don't you know, don't you remember this song? And I'm just like, you know, I'm thinking, oh no, 
I don't know that one. Like I knew a couple of them, like I knew the Madonna ones and I knew a couple of others, but not necessarily by artists, but by sound. From Because yeah, yeah. when we did ballroom dancing, we learned some. But I certainly didn't know. There was a whole lot I did not know. Mm. And it was so embarrassing for me. So when women come to me and they say, you know, it's been so hard for us, it is. And then if you've got to get a job and you haven't had a proper education or you or some people have only got primary school education, I mean, do you know how hard it is to try and get a job when you don't mm. have any education or you have no skills or people wonder where you come from? Like, good God, you know, you're ex years old and you don't know about the 80s or you don't know yeah. how to use a computer you know it, it's so embarrassing and it's so hard it would be definitely. you know to, yeah. to, to to try and create a new life and so you just don't say anything about it yeah trying i suppose you know battle your way through and hope that no one actually notices yeah exactly yeah. yeah you just fumble through and just look at everybody else and think okay well that's what they do okay they laugh at that so it must yeah. be funny all right yeah they must do this okay and you just pretend yeah but i mean i see i i found it very hard at the start when people would ask me because see we were in nara so the the cult is actually on one side of nara and it's still there and so when i moved and then from one from there to the other side of nara and the kids were going to the christian school there which was awesome and um you know like they're they're a beautiful community and you know a lot of the parents would go oh hi how are you welcome how long have you been here and instantly it's like well obviously i've lived in this area mm. for like 10 or 11 years now but then if i was to say that they'd be like oh where where yeah, were you living yeah. and i've got to say where i was living yeah you know because see now is also a defense town so you have a lot of navy and army move in and out of there so of course initially their first thought is when they see a new face is that you have to be part of defense mm. and of course i wasn't part of defense and you know and i was trying to hide my background but it's pretty hard to hide a decade of your life yeah yeah definitely <laughs> you know? now you've also written a memoir called lessons from a cult survivor which is one of strength resilience yeah. and courage what compelled you to write it? Well, I never had any, I actually never had any ideas of writing a book. And then as, just as we were talking just now and saying about my, um, you know, people asking me about my past, when I, I mean, it got to a point where I couldn't avoid it because you mm. can't just not talk about a chunk of your life. Yeah. Um, especially when it's so recent. So, I started talking just a little bit, just little bits here and there to see how people would take it and whether or not they'd just leave me because I was a weirdo. And um, they didn't. They actually became quite interested because obviously, you know, especially those that live in Nara, they know that the cult is there, mm. but they've never actually, they don't know how cults work. They don't know what goes on in the group. They don't know why people join and then why they leave, how difficult it is to leave, blah, blah, blah. And they would ask all those questions. And then somebody sort of flippantly said to me one day, oh, you should write a book. And I sort of went, yeah, right, whatever. Um, and they said, no, no, you really should. And I thought, oh, okay then. And so then I just started writing. And then I actually found it very cathartic yeah. as well. But then it's all, I also look at it as being, it's not just my story. I'm telling a story of many women. Yeah who have left these groups. So it's not just about me. 
And I'm going to write the second part of it, which talks about my journey from then till now and how, because a lot of people ask me, how did I make the change? How did I learn to live in the world? How did I make life normal? How did I undo the conditioning? How difficult did I find it? Like, you know, all of those things. And again, it's not just my story. This is the story of many women, Yeah. you know, and, and I want to, with my second book, I also want to have the input of some of my older kids as well, you know, because I know that the experience was difficult for them. Yeah. And I want to have sort of their perspectives as well, because I want it to be more of a resource book for universities, for psychologists, Mm. because I struggled to find a psychologist that would actually be able to understand my past. I mean, I eventually did find one, but you know, they don't really study this kind of thing in psychology. And it's difficult when somebody leaves a cult or a strict religious group to go find help Mm. because there's just not enough understanding about what it's like. Yeah. It's a great idea. And I, I mean, I'm a really big believer in, telling your story and sharing your story because I think that you can always find people that are living similar lives and will find it really helpful that you're telling the story and that something that they can connect to. And I think it's brilliant that you could also potentially use that as a resource for somebody else to maybe get out of a cult or religious sect or whatever themselves and have almost like a guidebook. It's such a great idea. I think it's brilliant. So do you, um, are you, are you still, involved in any religion now no i'm not i'm not religious but i am spiritual and i do have when i say spiritual i haven't defined anything yet Mm. it's all i've got more questions than i have answers um i am currently studying because um because of my homeschooling i didn't have any kind of real learning per se um, well, the unis don't class life experiences learning. So I'm doing, I'm studying at the moment so that I can gain a score to go to university next year. And I want to be able to do religious studies and sociology Great because idea. I already, I already have my research topics. Yeah. What I want to do. So, That's so cool. Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. Yeah. Where can people find more about you, Claire? Um, well, on my website which needs updating, but anyway, um, it's claireashman.com. Well, it's something I've got to get to. Um, but my face, She's a busy my woman. Page, I know, and I'm technologically challenged. So that's, that's a thing. Um, it takes me like five hours just to change one thing on uh, one page on there because it's just, oh. oh don't even talk to me about it. I'm actually all over technology, but still I hate doing my websites. Right. Okay. So, well, if you go, if they go to my Facebook page, so I have a Facebook page, which is Claire Ashman speaker. And, um, you know, if people I've, I've posted links to various talks and podcasts that I've got up there and people can message me if they want to. And that'd be on YouTube and stuff I'm assuming too. Oh yeah. All my interviews, um, uh, interviews and TEDx talks are on, um, YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, So, yeah. Well, Claire, I just want to thank you for coming onto the show and sharing your story. I find it absolutely brilliant that you're, you've found a new life, you're, you're charging ahead, you've got your wonderful kids growing up and doing amazing things, and it just goes to show that in any situation, if you're not happy, you can find a different way out and find a different life if you want to. 
Oh, you definitely can, yeah. you know, and I gave a talk about that in, I think it was TEDx Norwich about asking questions, mm. you know, and I, that's one thing that I do. I ask a lot of questions. Um, sometimes to the annoyance of my current husband who's like, <laughs> Oh my God, why? <laughs> I'm like, well, because I want to know. <laughs> I'm the same. You can't ask enough questions. You can never stop learning. I believe. I totally agree. Yes. Yeah. But thank you so much for having me. I really oh, appreciate my it. Pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed the talk. Thank you. Likewise. And I'll speak to you very soon. Yes. Thank you. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.